Sometimes you don't have the choice, and sometimes you don't have the skill to change it out for something different. But we are where we are. Today is going to be the first in a four-part series that we're going to be doing here through the end of May and the beginning of June, um, in which we are going to be asking this question. We're going to be asking this question, who are you? Who am I? See, this is, a, this is a question of identity. This is a question about, about what our identity is. And, and we live in a world, and we live in a moment, and we live in a culture where these questions of identity swirl around us all of the time. In fact, I think these questions of identity are, are, are the prime questions that people are asking themselves these days. We seem to be involved in a cultural-wide existential crisis. We don't know who we are, and so we keep seeking to define ourselves in various ways. And we all do this. Sometimes we do it by, by the music we listen to. I mean, I don't know if you remember being a high schooler, and maybe my experience was different than yours, but, but you knew what somebody's identity was by the way they dressed and the music they listened to. If someone listened to a certain kind of music, you knew how they were going to dress, you knew how they were going to interact with their friends, you knew how they were even going to interact with their parents. Or you could walk down the hall and you could see the way someone was dressed and you could be like, I know what kind of music they listen to. And then you had me who was listening to everything from heavy metal to punk to country to Simon and Garfunkel because, you know, the classics. Sometimes we define ourselves by the TV shows that we watch, or the movies we watch, or the pop culture that we consume. Hey man, I've got like the Captain America t-shirt and the Star Wars t-shirt, and when I wear it out, like people will say things to me about, hey, I like your t-shirt, I'll do the same thing if I see them. Particularly if somebody's wearing a t-shirt that's got like a really obscure reference of some kind on it to some pop culture thing that I really appreciate. That's about forging and forming and projecting an identity out into the world, isn't it? Maybe for those of you who aren't into Star Wars and superheroes, you do the same thing. Because you wear your NC State tie or your University of North Carolina polo shirt or a really ugly dark blue shirt of some kind. Or maybe you wear a Carolina Panthers shirt. One of my one of my favorite one of my favorite polo shirts, one of my favorite golf shirts is a is a Braves Braves polo. So there there are some ways that we can define ourselves like that that are relatively benign. I mean, the sports team that you cheer for in this country normally is not a cause to create physical violence. You go to Europe and you get involved in in European soccer, European football, and the firms over there and everything else they have. They have riots and violence and gang deaths all related, tied to their football teams. But here, most of the time, when we do things like that, there's, these are sort of benign ways for us to create and project identity out into the world. But sometimes there are more, some, there's some more toxic and destructive ways that we can define our identity. Sometimes, sometimes the way we define our identity, if we allow our politics or how we vote or how someone else votes to define us, and to create the, the foundation of our identity that can be kind of, it can be kind of toxic. 
And we can have all sorts of violence around that. Sometimes people root their identity so strongly in their wraith or ethnicity that it becomes toxic and destructive. These days we see a lot of folks who who define their identity, the core of who they are, by their sexuality. These can all become toxic and destructive. But see, the thing is, is it's not that it's not that these it's not that the ones that are that we think of as being less toxic are okay, and the ones that we think of as can being more toxic are not okay. And it's really not about a degree here. What it's about is that none of these things begin to help us get a handle that we can hold on to on what it means to root our identity in Christ. To root our identity in God. Unless, of course, you're a Wake Forest fan, and we all know that all true believers are Wake Forest fans. That's a joke, guys. Come on. (laughs) It may be a bad one, but it's still worth a laugh. But seriously, we, 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 we have all of these questions raging around us about identity. And what we need to do, and what I felt like we needed to do, is we needed to take some time and talk about what it means to be the family of God, to be believers, to be Christ followers, and what that means about our identity. And how we can have a sure and solid identity. Not one that's fluid, not one that changes, not one that's, that's, that's questionable but a solid identity on what it means to have our identity in Christ. See, our identities as Christians are formed and fortified the more time that we spend with God. And so this is what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks. We're going to be examining how we connect our experience of beholding God, of learning about God, of seeing God, understanding God, with how God changes us. How we are compelled to act in response to meeting God, how our identity in Christ shapes us, forms us, and drives us. And so today, we're going to begin laying the groundwork and understanding that our God-given identity is found when we behold God. And so we're in the book of Ephesians this morning. We're in the, the first chapter of Ephesians, the very beginning of that letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus. We're going to start with Ephesians 1.1. Will you join with me and stand as we read God's Word together? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful servants in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through, Christ, through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved One. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. In Him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let's pray. Dear precious God, as we, as we open your word and as we, as we seek to, to learn what it is that you have to say for us, God, I just pray that, that the questions about our identity and what it means to be a follower of you would be, would be laid bare for us. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So this, this letter, the, the letter that we call Ephesians or the epistle to the church at Ephesus, epistle to the Ephesians, it's an interesting letter that Paul writes. See, often when Paul's writing, he's writing to, to a particular problem. But when he writes to the church at Ephesus, it's not a particular pro, to solve a particular problem. Rather, it's just this letter exhorting and urging the recipients to stay strong in the faith. Paul spends the whole letter pointing to Jesus. Pointing people to Jesus telling them that they belong to him. An interesting thing that we need to remember or know about, the, about Ephesus was the fact that one of the things that Ephesus was known for was this huge temple to Artemis or Diana. Same goddess, different names. And in the temple at Ephesus, there was this huge statue idol of the goddess. This would have been central to the way people in Ephesus thought and understood the world around them. Many people in Ephesus would have said, we belong to Artemis. She is our patron. She is our goddess. We belong to her. And so Paul, writing to the Ephesians, he begins to, to, to th- ask them to think about what does it mean to belong to God through Christ. And these, these introductory words that we have here, this introduction from Paul, serve as this sort of description. 
of Paul writing to Ephesus, of what it means to belong to God. Right there in first one, as he's, as he is, as he's laying out who he is and who he's writing to, notice there what he says. He says, he calls the believers in Ephesus, back up, start over again, Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus, he refers to them as the faithful saints in Christ at Ephesus. See, this means that they're, they're believers in Jesus and firm and constant in their adherence to him and his truth and his ways. In other words, they are good disciples. We've talked about what it means to be a disciple, and a good disciple is one who is a reflection of the master that they are following. And if they are disciples of Jesus, they are good reflections of Jesus. They are good disciples because they are striving to grow in Christ-likeness. They want to be like Jesus. So Paul continues through these introductory words to, to sort of lay out a definition of what belonging to Jesus means. And we, and we can take that definition and we can use it as a measuring stick to see if we are measuring up. Are we being faithful saints? See, faithful followers are going to reflect Christ. We, we're going to carry His image out into the world. And so we see all these things through these verses that Paul lays out to communicate this relationship between believer and God. So so saints is one, right there in verse 1. In verse 4, Paul tells us that that these saints are the ones who are chosen by God, that God chooses us. In verse 5, that says that the believers are adopted as sons. We're adopted into God's family. We are adopted as His children. Verse 13, we see, we see that, that God is sealing with the promised Holy Spirit. And in the next verse, in 14, we see that the the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit that we have received, that we're actually going to celebrate next week at at Pentecost, the the Holy Spirit that we have received from God is is not the, the fullness of what God is going to give us, but merely a down payment. See, this language... This language that Paul is using to to demonstrate and to describe the relationship between God's people and God is really different than the language you would use to communicate your relationship to an idol. No one is going to stand in Ephesus and say, Artemis chose me. No one's going to stand in front of that that magnificent temple and say, I have been adopted into Artemis' family. 
If, if for no other reason than that is not a family you want to be adopted into. You know, anything about the Greek gods and their, let's say, dysfunctional family systems. This is not the way that people described their relationship to an idol. They don't describe it as this personal relationship, as this familial relationship. They don't describe it as being, having that relationship sealed by the God or Goddess. They don't describe as some promise they have received as being a down payment from Artemis. See, see what's happening here is, is the temple, this beautiful temple with this beautiful statue, and, and I wish it was still there because I'm sure that it would have been absolutely something magnificent to behold. But that temple... And that idol, that statue, was all about this outer show. It was all about projecting, right, this identity out into the world. We're gonna, we are going to prove that we are faithful to Artemis by building this huge temple, by building this amazing, magnificent statue. But what Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus about what Paul is talking to us about is about a rewritten identity about a reborn identity an identity that's born again that comes from within and is rooted in knowing seeing and beholding God see when Jesus in John 3, talks about being born again. He's pointing out that the change can't come from the outside in. Our change has to come from within, from when Christ dwells in our hearts and rewrites our identity and our birth from the inside out. What Paul's doing here is he uses these specific familial and relational terms to describe our position, our relationship with God, rather than the stark and sterile interaction that one would have with an idol. Artemis does not love you. Artemis does not see you as a child. Artemis did not come to live, die, and rise again for you. In verse 18, there's this word that Paul uses. And, and, and as I read it, it, it's the word that we've sort of translated here as enlightened. In Greek, the word is photizo. And it's, it's, if you know about some, some, maybe some Greek, you, you know this word, right? Photon, it's the particle of light. Photography, which is the capture of light on, on film. Well, it used to be on film and now it's on a digital cell. 
But, but this idea of, of that when you cast light on something, you can see it. And when you cast light on something, you can see it more fully. Zophotizo means to enlighten or, or to render evident. Helps us to see. When we've, when we've experienced God, when we, when we see God, when we are enlightened, when the, when the light is cast and we can see clearly, we better understand the hope that God offers. But, but in order for us to see, and in order for other folks to see, we, we, have, to, we have to have that light. We've got to see the light. Have any of you ever had the experience of going to like Mammoth Cave or, or any cave and you're way, way down deep and they turn off all the lights and you can't see nothing? There's this great description in, in the book The Hobbit. And, and so, so Bilbo is down in these caverns and the lights go out and it talks about him waving his hand in front of his face and he can't see it. Right there in front. We have to have light to see. And so we have to to see the image of God. We've got to see this picture of God in order for the light to be cast on us and for us to reflect that out so that others may see a picture of God as well. We carry the image of God. We carry the Imago Dei. Genesis 1.27 reminds us of this. So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. We carry the image of God. And so when people look to us, those of us who are believers, are we reflecting the light and the image of God back to people? In 1874, there was a group of artists that had been totally rejected by the French artistic establishment, and they decided to hold an independent exhibition in Paris. They were all sort of friends with each other. They had all been rejected multiple times by the Salon. And so they did this independent exhibition and one critic goes and he's sort of riffing off the name for one of the works exhibited, gave this group of artists the name by which we still know them today, the Impressionists. So this are artists like Monet and Manet, Renoir, Degas, Cezanne. This is the, this is the painting that they got their name from. It's called Impression Sunrise. It's a painting by Claude Monet. See, Impressionism was an artistic movement away from hyper-realism and an attempt to capture a scene at a particular moment in time. The river, this is the, the same river, and the sun is just coming up. 
It's the impression that we get at sunrise. In particular, the the Impressionists were concerned about how light changed over the course of the day and through seasons. Um, Monet, in particular, would paint the same scene over and over and over and over again at different times of day and in different light and in different times of year. Created these, these series of these paintings. Because what the Impressionists knew was that the world shifts around us, light and, and, and thus shadows and colors and, pardon, impressions, change. I am not, whew, I am not an artist. I'm not even terribly good at coloring in coloring books. But I understand that it's particularly hard to paint something like the Grand Canyon, to try and capture this thing. Because as soon as you have your paint mixed, the light changes and you're looking at something totally new. Trying to capture the, the, the majesty of something like the Grand Canyon. See, here's the thing. The Grand Canyon or a scenescape or even a sunrise is nothing compared to the grandeur of God. You know, we can't even begin to think about fully capturing the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, even with a photograph. When mom and dad were here, we were playing with technology, and dad was showing pictures up on our TV of their trip a few years ago to the Grand Canyon. And as we're going through, all my mom can keep saying is, it doesn't do it justice doesn't do it justice. Oh, it was so much bigger than that. Oh, it was so much prettier than that. Doesn't do it justice. But the crazy thing is, is that God says that we can begin to capture what He looks like that we can begin to reflect Him, that we can behold Him as greater and as grander and as more magnificent than God is than the Grand Canyon. We hold His image and we can begin to capture what He looks like. In order for us to, to capture an image, you've got to spend time with it, right? I don't, know, I don't know the full story behind Impression Sunrise. I'm sure I did at one point because I was that kind of nerd in high school, but right now I don't. But I also know that Monet did not go out one morning and stand on the bank of the Seine River one morning and paint that picture. He went out morning after morning after morning after morning to see it, to behold it, to come to understand it. He spent time with it. And if we're going to behold God, we've got to spend time with Him. We've got to come to know Him. 
You know, we have to, we have to allow time for our prayers to turn from monologues into dialogues. Now, I'm going to ask a question, and unless you feel particularly open and vulnerable today, you don't need to raise your hand and answer this question. How many of, your, how many of you, your prayer life looks like you talking to God, and when you're done saying what you have to say to God, you say amen, you get up from the table, and you move on? I think for a lot of us, that's the case. Now, I want you to think really hard. Say, I don't know, hypothetically, you have a pregnant wife. And hypothetically, she comes home from work and she wants to tell you about what's going on at work. She wants to talk with you. She wants to spend some time with you before the baby arrives. Is it wise to sit down and say, here was my day, A, B, C, D happened, all right, thank you for your time, and get up and walk away from her? No. No. I've learned that lesson. Because that's not communication, right? That's not spending time with her. You don't, when you're, when you're dating somebody for the first time and you're, and you're trying to get to know each other and everything, you don't sit across a dinner table and monologue at someone. Now, some of you may have been on dates where that happened to you, but was there a second date? If you want to get to know somebody, you talk with them, not at them. And yet so often our prayer life looks like us talking at God and not with God. We've got to allow time for our prayers to turn from monologues into dialogues. We can, we can also learn more about God and we can spend some time with Him Honestly, by observing his, his powerful creation. John 1 tells us that when God spoke the world into existence, the Word of God, the Logos of God, Christ himself was woven into the fabric of creation. There are things that we can learn about God by observing the world around us. This is not permission to go golfing on Sunday morning instead of coming to church. But on Friday afternoon, when you're out on the golf course or down in the state park or just in your backyard, watch and pay attention to the majesty of creation and understand it is but a dim reflection of the majesty of God. And then, of course, one of the most important ways that we can come to know and learn and understand God is that we can read His Word and learn the story of God and His people. To, to spend time in His Word. 
There's, a, there's an art gallery in, right outside Detroit, actually. It's called Park West Gallery. And they have this really cool, really cool thing on their website about like, okay, you're coming to an art gallery. How do you understand and appreciate art? Because it can be a little obtuse for some of us. Some of us, our appreciation of art sort of boils down to, well, that's a pretty picture. And there's more to it than that, right? At least I'm told. There's more to it than that. So you have this great page about how to understand art. And one of the first things that they say is that, is that you need to allow some time, spend some time with a piece of art so that you become familiar with it. Go to a museum sometime and just stand in front of a painting or a statue and just observe it for, for a period of time. And then they say, you know, look at, the, look at the basics. Look at the size and the shape. Look at the medium, how it was painted. One of the things the Impressionists were known for was painting with visible, heavy brushstrokes. They sort of piled the paint up on the painting and created texture. And then third, they, they sort of say, you're looking at a picture, notice how the composition of the picture, the way things are put together, makes your eye move. In certain compositions, it's gonna, your, your eye is going to start here, and through the composition of the piece, you're going to end up here, and then you're going to end up down here as the artist tries to tell you a story through the painting. There's some other things, of course. But those are only three, and there were eight. But some of these same skills we can use to how we behold God. We need to spend time with God. We need to spend time with God. That's one of the first things that we need to do. We spend time with God in, in prayer and in Bible study. That's why that personal time that you have with God is so important. Because you're getting to, to spend time with Him and you're getting to know Him and you're observing Him. Getting to know the One whom we are to reflect. And the second thing, the second thing, after we spend time with God, as we begin to spend time with God, we can begin to observe basic things about God. Observing some basic things about God. I mean, it's how you get to know anybody, right? You spend time with them and you begin to observe basic things about them. I spent a little time with Audrey and I observed that she liked to make Mel Brooks jokes, so... It piqued my interest. As you observe more and more about that person, you, you begin to, to know more about them. You begin to be able to recognize them, even from a long way off. Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where you see somebody walking and, and they're quite a ways away, and you can't even really see who it is, but you know instantly who it is? Because of the way they walk, the way they hold themselves, just the sort of generalized shape of them, even from a distance. You know, I've heard of, of folks who are, who are visually impaired 
who can know who is approaching them just by listening to their gait. It's true and very exciting. But there are other ways to learn about God. I mean, the primary way, the most important way for us to learn about God is to spend time in His Word and to spend time in prayer. But there are other ways to learn about God. You know, Scripture must always come first. It is the criterion by which we judge everything else. But remember how I said there were all of these people that knew a whole lot more than I did about the pandemic that we tried to listen to? There are a whole lot of people out there, 2,000 years worth of people out there who have spent lifetimes studying deeply the Scripture and spending time with God who have written magnificent things about God. One of the things that we affirm as a congregation, which is relatively unusual for a lot of Baptist congregations is we recognize that while Scripture is the basis of all truth, we recognize that the historic creeds of the church are a good reflection of that biblical truth. That's a tool. The creeds and confessions of the church tell us about God, help, can help us come to understand Him and see Him and know Him better. There are historic catechisms. Catechisms are these things where where there's a question that's asked and then an answer that's given and helps us begin to learn things. When I was a little kid, mom was telling the story when they were here last week, when I was little, 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 I asked her from the backseat of the car, mom, mama, why are we here? Please help him in the car. We're in the car because we're going to the store here. No, no, why are we here? Well, we're in Crestview because that's where we live. No, like, why are we alive? Oh, I'm not looking forward to having kids. And mom was caught sort of flat-footed. But here's the thing. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the primary purpose of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him always. What an answer to a kid. Mama, why am I here? You are here, son to glorify God and to enjoy Him always. There's truth in these things. Read books. No believer should ever be content to, to not trying to grow in their knowledge about God. Read books. Listen to podcasts. Listen, listen to other preachers and their sermons. Watch things, movies, and videos online. Be careful. Be discerning. There is a lot of junk out there. Did you know they will let anyone with an internet connection have a Facebook page and post things on it? It's crazy. I know. There's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of good stuff out there too. Of course, weigh all these things against Scripture. Make sure that the author or presenter is centering Scripture and not simply pointing to it as sort of out of obligation, but is rooting his or her arguments in Scripture, come to know and observe things about God. Learn about Him. When you meet someone and you, 
and you want to spend time with them and you want to have a relationship with them, you learn things about them. You learn that their favorite color is purple. That they were born in March in Pennsylvania. That their daddy is a preacher. That they've got an older brother and a younger sister. And that they have really poor taste in men. If we learn these things about the people that we want to spend things with, why are we not learning these things about God? Spend time with God. Observe things about Him. And pay attention. Pay attention to how God causes your eye to move in new or different directions. Pay attention to how God causes your eye to move in new or different directions. As we are reborn and as we grow in holiness, as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we come, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we're going to come to be more and more confident in hearing the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. It helps us. It's, it's there to, to guide us and sustain us, to undergird us. It is a gift. And the more we know God, the better we will more clearly hear when the Holy Spirit is in our lives, prompting us to serve God in particular ways, showing us where we are needed in building the kingdom. Sometimes we have all of these plans set up in life, don't we? We know exactly what we're going to do. And then something comes along and changes it all. Pay attention to how God causes your eye to move in a different direction. If we do these things, if we spend time with Him and we learn all that we can about Him, if we pay attention to Him, we will certainly gain a broader understanding of Him. Because as we know more, we will grow more. I never do the sort of like rhymey thing. So this was totally an accident today, but it works. As we know more, we grow more. Spending time with God, acknowledging His grandeur and beauty develops our familiarity with the One whom we are called elect. Each and every one of us has the image of God stamped on us. We are called to to reflect Him. We're called to, to root our identity in Him. In His grandeur and in His light and in being His reflection. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be 275.